This is Hayden Fisher. This is Kim Gray. And this is Equalized, episode number two. So before we talk about uh, what's going on currently, I thought it would be a good idea to give a little bit of history of this stadium. So we had the Richmond Braves here in Richmond for a number of years. In fact, we had them for 43 years, according to Wikipedia, if they're correct. The Richmond Braves had the longest tenure in any city of any team of 43 years other than the Baltimore Orioles Appalachian League affiliate, the Bluefield Orioles. So they were here from 1966, I believe, until their last game on September 1st, 2008, a game which I was actually there. They had Dale Murphy and a lot of the players that come out and played throughout the years there in attendance. It was a great moment, but also a sad moment because we're now losing the Richmond Braves. And this tortured history goes back a while. So we lost the Richmond Braves because somewhere around 2006, depending on who you believe, either then-Mayor Doug Wilder forgot to call and return the calls to the Braves, or they didn't like what he said, or they couldn't get in touch with him, or they didn't return his calls. There was all kinds of stuff going on back and forth as to why the Braves left, with both sides blaming each other. If people remember, if they were here in Richmond, that was when Mayor Wilder at the time was having his big feud with the school board, and he had ordered the police to kick them out of City Hall, and all that stuff was going on. And in the midst of that, the Braves left. So the Braves left, and then fortunately we had another team come in, the AA Eastern League's Connecticut Defenders, a San Francisco Giants affiliate, but independently owned. They moved to Richmond to play as the Richmond Flying Squirrels, and they began in 2010. And of course, they were promised a new stadium. But the city's problem with the stadium goes back even further, because people who have been in Richmond for a while remember that it used to be Parker Field. Parker Field is where the Braves, Richmond Braves, played their games up until 1985. And in 1985, the city built a new stadium for the Richmond Braves called the Diamond. And according to the case I'm reading from, and now I'm going to get into the law a little bit, because this situation, these facts, and ultimately created a very famous case in Virginia law, the Virginia legal history from the Supreme Court of Virginia, um, according to the case, the diamond was built during the winter of 1984-1985. So think about that. It was supposedly built within a year. And this ongoing process has been going on for more than a decade to try and build a new one. But one of the reasons maybe it was built so quickly is the design criteria included 32 precast post-tensioned concrete structural members known as bents for its cantilevered roof and upper concourse seating. And I'm reading directly from this case. Richmond Metropolitan Authority, the McDevitt Street Brothers. And for those lawyers out there or people that want to look it up, it's 256 Virginia, 553, 1998. It was decided on November 6, 1998. And each bent was to have had hollow conduits containing steel tendons and bars. After insertion and tensioning of the steel tendons bars, the design criteria required the injection of grout into each conduit. The grout was to be injected through protruding grout tubes, and when the grout had set, the tubes would be cut off flush with the surface of the vents and sealed. The purpose of the grout was to strengthen the vents, prevent corrosion in the steel of the steel tendons bars, and enhance the structural integrity of the diamond. Well, not long after the diamond was constructed, it started falling apart. And for those of you who may not know, the statute of limitations, and at the time on which you can file a lawsuit, for a written contract claim is five years in Virginia. 
In fraud, in a fraud case, it's when you discover the fraud, that's when it first accrues. Well, in basically 1996, the Richmond Metropolitan Authority discovered that many of the conduits contained no grout or insufficient grout, and that as a result, the steel tendons bars in the conduits had corroded. And according to the RMA, McDevitt had sealed the empty tube openings with grout, thus giving the false impression that the conduits were filled with grout. RMA also learned that the three conduits contained no steel tendons and bars. So this thing was falling apart in the late, late mid to late 90s. So RMA sued the McDevitt brothers, who had already gone off with their money. Um, but they were unable to prevail because the court ruled you can't fraudulently perform a contract or fail to perform a contract. You either fail to perform it or you perform it, but you can't fraudulently fail to perform it. And so basically the city inspectors didn't pick up on this when it was being built. And so that's, so the diamonds tortured history even goes back that far to it was crumbling in the late 1990s and had to have work done to it. So this need for a new stadium was, it was clearly warranted even when the Braves left in 2008-9. So the Braves leave, the Squirrels come in, and then there's this talk about having a downtown stadium in Shaco Bottom. And on May 13, 2014, then Mayor Jones announced a new stadium deal that was going to be built in Richmond's Shaco Bottom area. It's going to be a completed, complicated project with lots of moving parts. Money from the redevelopment of the boulevard area would be used to fund the Shaco Bottom revitalization, which would include the ballpark, grocery store, retail, and housing. That was the proposal, and there was lots of debate back in 2014 about that. Remember, the poor squirrels were promised a new stadium when they came here. On May 27, 2014, it was reported that that proposal was headed towards defeat by the city council, and on May 28, 2014, it was withdrawn. So at that point in time, it was a dead deal. All this energy was spent trying to talk about a new stadium there. Nothing happens. Then we get to 2016, I believe, no, 2015. And actually, before we get to there, Eastern League President Joe McUrchin expressed his frustration with the fact that this team was not getting a new stadium. That's on May 30, 2014, almost nine years ago today. And so then there's another proposal that comes along to move it to the boulevard. And this is under Mayor Jones, and then that moves forward. And then about 2016 to 2020, they talk about that, and the VCU is going to lead this project. And in 2020, a memorandum of understanding was signed with VCU, where VCU was going to build out a new stadium for the squirrels. And we went down this path for a while, and nothing happened. And ultimately, that deal was scrapped until we get to the current category of proposals. So in September 13 of last year, 2022, there was an announcement there was going to be a new stadium, and they were going to put it, but before we go there, the new, the prior deal was going to put the stadium where the old ABC building is. In fact, Mayor, and this is detailed in some of these articles that are out there. In February 2020, then Governor Northam spoke about the plans to put this at the old ABC site near the Diamond. And he said, we've been working with DCU, and as you know, the Squirrels, the minor league team, they're interested in it. So that process is moving forward, Northam said. The plans are someday to have a world-class stadium there that both VCU and the Squirrels can use, and they're working through that now, but I think that would be exciting for downtown Richmond. And they move on, and then City Council in 2020 voted to, or in June of 2020, they voted to 
approved that plan. Uh, and then that plan fell through. And then we get to September 2022, they announce a new plan. And then most recently here, just they have, the city has announced that that plan is no longer feasible because interest rates have risen. The Diamond Partners, who were selected and announced as the developer in September of 2022, are still going to be the developer. But instead of doing it where they had intended to do it, now they're going to do it where the sports backer stadium is currently located. And so here we are to talk about this particular plan. But before we did that, I thought maybe for those who don't know, this tortured history of the stadium really needs to be documented. So with that introduction, Kim, and talking about some of this tortured history of the diamond, what do you think about this new proposed deal? Well, I think that as a council representative, my main focus was having the diamond district and the second district. My main focus was to make sure that the residents that I represented were um, their their thoughts and concerns were known and expressed to the city. I'm not sure that's happening on the same level. Um, I know that people who live in the immediate vicinity had concerns about traffic. I had concerns about noise and light pollution and things that um, obviously um, the expansion and um, and building out of that area would create for them. And some of it, I think, was addressed and um, a great part of it was has not been addressed to date. One of the things that jumps out to me is the parking, because the parking, as anyone, everyone knows, in Scott's edition is already challenged. And so they're talking about 1,000 new apartments and 100 new condos, 180-room hotel, 58,000 square feet of new retail. Where, I guess there's 1,700 garage parking spaces, but how about people coming to the game, people coming to shop and eat? Right. Where are they going to park? Well, that's always been a question for Scott's Edition. Um, it's grown exponentially in the past decade. And parking, uh, we did a parking study when I was on city council that showed that we were lacking in tons of parking spaces. I think that the, the pulse was supposed to take some of that pressure off. It has not. Um, but multimodal transportation plans and um, bike lanes and other modes of transportation were supposed to help alleviate some of the parking concerns. And I know with the diamond proposal that I had seen, um, there was shared parking um, proposal. So um, workers park during the day. When they leave, um, the residents come in and use those same parking spaces so that the cost of housing um, is offset by the, the business use. But it seems to me if they put this thing where they originally intended, which is over where the Virginia ABC building was, that warehouse, that's a huge space. Certainly could fit the stadium. And then it'd be on that Meadow, is that Meadow Hermitage Road. Is that what well, that is? I think that the Sportsbacker Stadium is to go there, and the Diamond, um, I believe, would still be on the same footprint. Well, that's what they're talking about now. But originally, back when Northam was out there championing this thing in 2000, or 2020, they were talking about putting it where the old ABC building is. Correct. To me, that would have kind of shared some of the traffic to have some of it on that corridor of their uh, meadow and hermitage, as opposed to having it all on Boulevard. There were some pluses to that, and there were also um, some concerns from the residents who live in that Sherwood Park area because it would push traffic through that residential area. And what do you think about them taking down 
the sports backer stadium, which apparently VCU plays soccer there now. I know that RVASC played their soccer there when they were here back in 2014. It's kind of a neat little community stadium. It's tucked in very nicely. It's got parking. It's got adequate use for what it's being used for as a kind of a mixed use type of community right. stadium. Why would you tear that down just to rebuild something else? And that doesn't make any sense to me. So I think VCU uh, is planning their their sports complex on the opposite side, and Richmond has agreed in this plan to pay twenty five million for that parcel. Um, it's, I believe, and I could be a little bit off, but it was less than six million in assessment, and um, the city has agreed to purchase that parcel from VCU in order for the diamond development to move forward. Yeah, I think I saw that in the article that they had agreed they were going to pay $25 million for the property and then sell it to a developer for like $12 million, is that right? Yes. And so there's somebody's getting a $13 million windfall, I guess, right off the bat. Well, I mean, the city, which is us as taxpayers, the city is paying more than obviously the market value if if they're or they're selling it for less than what the market value is. So um, either way you look at it, there's a, there's a gap of more than $10 million. And why should the taxpayers eat that $10 million as opposed to any other interested party, including VCU? So they would say you have to spend money to get money. However, um, I, I don't always agree with that. I haven't, I haven't looked at all of the numbers, so I can't really speak to why that would or wouldn't make sense. But um, there are so many other costs that you don't readily see with these types of developments and um, the taxpayer ultimately ends up paying for those things and going just going back to the articles as i was doing getting ready to do this this piece they were talking about a cost of 56 50 to 60 million to build it back in 2016 or 2020 i can't right. remember which one then it was 60 to 70 million last fall now it's up to 80 million which means it's probably going to be over 100 million dollars and this, again, that's important. It's not the city means the taxpayers, it means the residents. Right. So the cost of the taxpayers is going up very substantially. Do we know much about why Diamond Partners was selected or how they were selected? I wasn't part of city council when that process went forward, and I haven't followed it as closely as um, as I would have. So. I don't know how they were selected or why. I can say that stadiums are, are risky business for localities. Um, they, I love the squirrels, I can say that, but um, rarely do localities make money off of these types of um, investments. Yeah, I think that's important to note. The squirrels have done a great job. They've come in, they've really tried to create a family-friendly environment and business model that is more than just baseball. Um, and they've done a, they've been a tremendous community partner. I mean, you hear Parney out there, he's involved in all kinds of stuff, always doing everything he can to become a community partner. They've been strung along ever since they got here. And the history goes back again before them to what was done to the Braves, how the ball was dropped back in 2006 when they were here. And so you just wonder and you hope that this thing actually does happen and that it's something that the city can be proud of and doesn't cost a fortune. I mean, we can hope. <laughs> and, and of course, um, we love Nutsy. We don't want him going anywhere. And Parney has done a great job 
with um, inviting our students in from our school system and um, making sure that access is um, primary for all residents and um, not just folks coming in from the counties. It's a lot more city residents who are enjoying those games. So I think that's really important. Another thing I read is that the city had to spend over $3 million to make improvements to the stadium just to have it qualify to be used this year for 2023. So they spent $3 million on it, then they're going to demolish it, I guess. Right. So that's just a waste of money. But you're right, and now it's been pushed off. The, the Major League Baseball had a deadline of 2025 to have this stadium done. And for those that don't know, I don't think that's just about um, you know luxury amenities. I think that includes player safety type of um, concerns as well in terms of what they have internally inside the stadium for things like, I don't know exactly how it all works, but it's, like, for example, I remember I was watching the game a couple of weeks ago and uh, somebody got hit on the hand and they x-rayed his hand during the inning change to find out if it was a fracture or not and he came out and played again. Right. So a lot of these things are there, not just for luxury amenities, but also just for player safety and also safety of patrons. But the quote directly from the general manager or the managing general partner of the Squirrels, Lou Dabella, if I'm pronouncing his name right, he says, if there isn't a stadium built that meets prescribed MLB guidelines, is suitable for professional baseball and is worthy of the great city of Richmond, there will be no opening day 2026 in RVA. Right. Well, I mean, we've been hearing that for some time, and I did take a tour of the the guts of the stadium, and it's in pretty decrepit shape. And, I mean, even the most, the one thing that stood out to me the most, which was pretty disgusting, is there's a little toilet right around from the dugout that is absolutely disgusting. And um, that's... Like an outhouse? Uh, yeah, it's like it's like an outhouse, but worse than any Combo, outhouse I've seen. Um, the, the locker rooms, there's, you know, ceiling tiles falling in, there are leaks. It is in bad shape, and I think that minimum health, safety, and welfare um, improvements, money had to be spent to, to just bring it up to that minimum level. I don't know all the ins and outs of that. Obviously, I wasn't there, but um, it's, it's a lot of money when we have schools that are in similar shape. Well, let's hope they go nutsy about getting this project finished. Well, let's see what happens. <laughs> my name is Hayden Fisher. I've been practicing law for about 20 years. About 2008, I formed my own law firm, representing injured people, entrepreneurs, and small businesses. I pride myself on being available to my clients. The best negotiator is a good litigator, and I've obtained favorable results for my clients through negotiation and mediation, too. I look forward to helping you with your specific legal needs. For more information, you can visit my website, www.fisherlawrva.com. So there have been a number of police shootings or police-involved incidents requiring the police to shoot recently. And what can you tell us about that, Kim? So three shootings in 33 days. I think um, as more information um, was brought forward on the first one, it was a, a man who had shot his wife, apparently, and drew and um drew fire he drew his gun and fired at an officer and um, was killed subsequently um there was a shooting this week with a dump truck driver who um, apparently was chased from richmond to Henrico and um, was 
ramming cars from from what I've heard from witnesses and their accounts. So um, and there was a third one in between there. So I think that what it what it speaks to is our decline in public safety. I think post COVID, we're seeing this across the country. A lot of people are um, just on edge and there's an overall disregard for human life and um, just public safety in general. So what did the witnesses say about this dump truck? The witness that I heard speak, um, and it was an anonymous witness who spoke to the news, said that the dump truck was not stopping and they kept ordering it to stop and it rammed through um, some police cars and was continuing to to drive. What do we know about the driver, if anything? I haven't heard any news about the driver. Um, the The next morning there was a dump truck accident, so it was kind of confusing. Um, a guy on, on the south side ran into a dump truck apparently after being shot, and there has been an arrest in that dump truck accident. So I think a lot of it got intertwined and confused. Merged together, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, because one of them happened, they happened like 12 hours of each other or something, didn't they? Right. So I don't know what it is with dump trucks, but um, we've certainly um, had some serious incidents. I th um, the other really sad news this um, from yesterday is another VCU student was struck and killed. Um, a pedestrian? A pedestrian was struck and killed um, on Main Street yesterday. So um, we have seen a huge uptick in pedestrian-involved accidents. and. Um, Cyclists being hit. So what block was that? Do you know? Three hundred. Three hundred East Main. West. West Main. West Main. So near the business school. Okay. Um, yeah. The young person was a student, a grad student in the school of business, and um, well loved in that community. That's really sad. There's. I don't see any kind of speed enforcement ever on Main or Cary. We have a shortage of officers. Um, again, that that continues to be an issue. Uh, we have a lot of people who, since COVID, have not gotten their cars inspected. They they have faulty brakes and other things that would normally be corrected through the inspection process. There are people driving without insurance, without licenses. I think that there was some kind of switch that flipped um, when DMVs closed down and people weren't required to have current decals and inspections and things like that. And I think that now it's it's like the Wild West. Well, I think I told you I go in the last podcast when I go to court, just as anecdotally, when I go to court, that second floor of the courthouse used to be packed in the mornings with people there on driving tickets and infractions. There's not nearly the volume of those anymore. And again, as we talked about last podcast, it's not because people are driving better. No. It's just that there's a lack of resources, I guess, to enforce the traffic laws as they exist. And, and some and of which have been changed, too. A lot of it has. Um, and and then they're darned if they do, darned if they don't. Uh, there have been several stops that have gotten recorded, and um, the officers are vilified until the whole story comes out. There was a VCU student speeding through that area, and VCU police stopped, and there was a clip shown, and then when the full video got shown, it was a, a completely different story. So I think that um, 
obviously we want the best police possible and we want people who are going to be respectful to to us uh, but I think it's a t respect is always a two-way street so we've got to be be able to respect the the speed limits we've got to respect the the pedestrians who are on the roadway and um, do our best to keep everyone safe but speaking of VCU and public safety the other thing that's happened since our last podcast the students for life event they had their first event for, I think I saw that well yeah what made the national news that video was everywhere yeah where I guess there were two arrests of Antifa people we should probably try and follow those cases and see what happens yeah I think that there were two people in the crowd who got violent with the speakers and um, VCU ultimately VCU police had to remove them and and made arrest and the speakers, whether you agree with what they're saying or not, they were there, rightfully so. They were scheduled to be there to speak about their issues on campus. Right. And so people who are interested in those issues can come and attend and listen and make comments, whatever, or you don't have to go. But these people were clearly there to agitate, apparently. And then um, I understand they retried that last week. Did you see that? I did not. And they retried it last week, and then Antifa people showed up with lawyers. Wow. And... Yeah, so it um, makes you wonder what's really going on at VCU. You know, the VCU admissions are down. I believe it was Voltaire who said, I may not agree with what you have to say, but I'll fight to the death for your right. Right to say it? I mean, that's our... To say it. And free speech and the First Amendment are... I really botched that one, but it's something like that. Well, that's, I mean, that's the message, right? That, right. We you don't need protected speech for speech you agree with, or right. most people agree with. You need protected speech for speech that most people don't, a lot of people don't agree with or might find offensive, but it, their right to speak is your right to speak as well. Exactly. And you can always turn the volume off or walk away. You don't have to hear what someone wants to say. And, right. and if somebody's saying that something is completely outlandish, they can say that, but there'll be consequences to them socially and Professionally, if they're saying things that are completely crazy. Or if they disagree, they can book a room next door and have a meeting. I mean, there are ways to influence people and to have your voice heard. I just don't think reacting violently is ever the answer. Reacting violently is never the answer, and censorship is never an answer, too, because, you know, it starts with one little thing that, that yeah, I agree, we should censor that. And next thing you know, we're China. Yeah. So... I kind of put that under the public safety category, too, though, because these, these two speakers were assaulted and there were two arrests made. I think we should follow these cases to make sure we know what happens to these cases. Yeah, I hadn't be. heard any updates. So that is an interesting uh, dynamic that's been going on. I can go follow them on the court information website, which is available to the public. Right. And follow and see what happens with these two. But then how about then shootings in general? I also saw a statistic recently that the... Richmond this year has had the highest per capita increase in homicides of any city of size in the country. Yeah. Something along those lines. We've seen we've seen an increase in schools. Um, we've seen an increase in our communities. There was gunfire outside my house um, only a couple of nights ago, and I always call it in because I never know if someone is is injured and, and in need of help. So I will call in when I hear that, but, um, it's, it's happening too often. And, um, it's, it's unfortunate. I do think that the police chief is respected and he'll be able to, if he gets that permanent post, he'll be able to 
recruit and retain good officers. Um, I think the other thing in the news this week that was a little surprising is that Jody Blackwell, who was interim chief for maybe 11 days and was let go from Richmond police and, and sued the mayor and the city of Richmond, um, was allowed to return to his post as major at this week. So um, I guess there was something, the city attempted to have the lawsuit dismissed um, multiple times in court and um, those dismissals were denied. And I think that the city saw the writing on the wall and the mayor doesn't want all the information coming out about. I saw that, I thought that was interesting. He agreed to withdraw his lawsuit. Yes. Or voluntarily dismiss his lawsuit. They call that a non-suit in the law in Virginia. It's probably what he did. And the city agreed to rehire him back as major. Right. Well, he was about, I'm told, within less than two years of retirement and um, had spent his entire career in Richmond, which has a separate retirement than other localities. So that was a significant loss having um, been let go when he was within, I want to say, 21 to 18 months of his retirement date. And it's a, you know, when they're in those positions, it's called a drop. They get a huge payout, um, fire and police do, for their service. And um, it was probably worth the $5 million he was suing for, the, just what he, the damage he. And I remember reading that article. I think he initially said he didn't want that interim police chief position. No. And Stoney agreed, convinced him, like went to his house or something, and convinced him to take it. Yeah. And he had it for like 11 days and was fired. It's just so... He wasn't immediately fired. He was... Um, put on administrative leave or something. Mm-hmm. And then eventually fired when the new police chief came in. And then now... So now we have the interim police chief, John Edwards. That's his name, right? Yes. Who, from all accounts, is doing a pretty good job. Is that what you hear? I'm hearing good things. I'm also, surprisingly, and I did not vote for him to be our CAO, but um, I have gotten good results from Lincoln Saunders lately, and I've been watching him in budget hearings. He seems to have really gotten a handle on city departments and and their needs. So um, I think it's a little too little too late at this point to save um, some of these departments and, and the administration, but um, I, I was surprisingly impressed with Lincoln Saunders lately. So speaking of the city council, I know that the mayor has a new ordinance he proposed, 2023-101, and it talks about uh, parking and basically eliminating the parking requ- a lot of the parking requirements in the city. I think city council is poised to vote on that, or have they already voted on it? I think it was approved last Monday, or Monday before last. And so basically this is going to eliminate a lot of the parking restrictions in the city? Um, it, it removes the, the minimum requirements for housing developments and apartment developments, but um, what developers will tell you is that the banks will always require that they have some parking. Um, so it's apparent what cities are doing to strike a balance and try to um, create more affordable housing because building parking structures is extremely expensive. Um, It can cost anywhere between $10,000 and $25,000 of space, um, depending on how high you go and if you're building a parking deck. Um, That was, those are numbers from maybe three or four years ago. So it's 
maybe even more than that now. So I think this is supposed to lower the cost of building those apartment dwellings. And um, But it's also designed to pave the way for higher density housing, right? Higher density and they they are equating this higher density and lower cost to affordable housing affordable housing and being able to pass that down to the consumer it doesn't always translate so i think that i would have put some stipulations on those parking i wouldn't have blanketly eliminated those parking requirements i would have put some stipulations on um, who gets them and how they um how they price those apartments because there's a cost savings. And that all sounds great and dandy to create more affordable housing and higher density housing, but these cars have to go somewhere. Like before I was here earlier today, I had to go run an errand over down by 400 block of um, East Franklin. And of course now Franklin Street, half of it is now turned into parking. Right. And so I was able to park on literally on the left hand of par- left hand lane of what used to be the left hand lane of parking of Franklin Street. Right. And then run in and run this document over to the law firm I'm working with. But um, but these cars have to go somewhere, and I, I guess they can. I guess they're they say they can rely on the buses, but when the buses are being used as housing shelters, homeless shelters in many ways, as yeah. we talked about last time. So I'm not sure this is smart development, and this is a smart proposal. I think that there are a lot of questions still looming. Um, the 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 one good thing is that banks will not finance a deal that they don't think can be successful long run. So if if you come to borrow money and you want to build 100 apartments with no parking, um, they're going to tell you no way and push back on that. Now, will it be less than what the city had required? Possibly, but you have to give a justification for how you're going to keep those apartments full without providing for a place for people to park their cars. So um, it's we'll see what happens. This is a trend in a lot of um, mid to large, mid-sized to large cities. And I have a feeling what they're going to say to the banks is this was part of our equitable development, mm-hmm. and therefore you should waive any of these requirements, banks, because this is part of our equity agenda. That's how it's being proposed. Well, I don't know that. I would hope that the banks are looking at the numbers and not just um, being social um, services organizations. I know that a couple of banks have have um, failed recently because they were looking at um, more social issues and not looking at their bottom line. But um, it's important to balance that. And the other zoning thing they're talking about changing is the... Um, the what, air. Go ahead. The Airbnbs. Yeah, the Airbnb. About to say. Yes, they, what they call <laughs> accessory dwelling units. Is that what they call them? Accessory dr- dwelling units are usually apartments that go over your garage or um, additional little apartments within your housing. A lot of times it can be with these new tiny houses. Right. That are basically designed a pre, I guess a prefab, and they're right. designed to be just underneath the square footage requirement. Right. They have plumbing and electrical and things like that. It's basically a shed, but it's being marketed as a tiny house or right. an A-frame or something like that. It's it's a lot of trendy things happening. I, I hope that as a city and I'm, so 
that's slightly different than the Airbnb ordinances, but people aren't following the rules on those anyway. I, I went outside on Sunday and started doing some yard work and people were checking out of all the houses around me. Um, it was Sunday afternoon. It's, it was like everybody was loading their cars and putting their luggage in. And I'm like, what is going on? I literally did not know any of these people. And there were several all around me. And I'm like, I don't know any neighbors anymore. I don't have any neighbors anymore. And what I found interesting that was pointed out to me is when they took all the monuments down on Monument Avenue mm -hmm. and didn't replace them with something, a new historical monument. Now Monument Avenue has, Monument Avenue used to be designated as a historical district. That's the whole, the whole street, right? Right. It was a nationally designated historic landmark. Right. And so with that became all kinds of zoning restrictions and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And now those are gone because the monuments are gone. And so those, all those houses on Monument Avenue can become short-term rentals, Airbnb types of things, and also have accessory dwelling units in the backyards or theoretically even in the front yard, I guess. Right. And it's one thing to have a talk about an Airbnb, but a lot of these, especially these tiny houses, especially when they're associated with a, a larger dwelling, I think the research shows they tend to be havens for human trafficking. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that. I don't know a lot about what the research shows or how or how that works out i know it it's a it's pretty alarming um, to have a lot of changes happening really fast and um i don't know that they're going to yield uh, better opportunities for people who are seeking housing who can't quite afford it so um i do think there what I learned from serving in local government is that one place will try something and it becomes a trend and we hear all the same buzzwords and you'll start to see other places and um, it's it's more of a, a trendy thing to do. Uh, I My only um, hope is that banks do not finance as many of these deals and um, that it won't it won't be as successful i mean you talk about a place like monument avenue that completely that could completely change the fabric of that community and some people may say it's a good thing and some people may say it's a bad thing but for it to happen that fast no one really knows what the final outcome will be right. some things can be well intended some things can also be maliciously intended well, but no one really knows what the end result's going to be just being in jackson ward in my neighborhood i think that when you say the word community, that has a whole different connotation when I'm surrounded by Airbnbs and um, people are changing out constantly. So there's not a real sense of community when you don't know your neighbors, when you don't have those kind of long-term connections. When, you know, my kids walk to the bus stop, I had to give them a lecture. I had to, my daughter went to the store this morning. Well, she went to the coffee shop we live downtown, and I said, you have to be so careful. I've looked at the active um, alerts, and people are being robbed. There's, there was an assault last night on my block. There was um, one block over on Lee Street. There was a robbery. So I I caution even my, my teenage children. You know, this is my second set of kids growing up in a downtown neighborhood, and it's a lot scarier and a lot different because... I don't have the the extra set of eyes that I used to have in my neighbors 
um, looking after my kids when they're coming and going from their bus stops and, and things like that. So I do think that there are, there may be some benefits to it, but there's a, a an intangible loss of community when um, these things are blanketly allowed. Right. That's why most condo associations don't only allow a certain number of the units to be rented out. They have right. to have a, the majority have to be owner occupied at all times. Right. Because they want that community, want people who are owner occupied or invested in the community. And I had a set of questions just sitting here thinking about it. I don't know if you would know the answer to it or not, but if you're a sex offender and you go into a short term rental, do you have to register? I, I don't know the answer to that. Because for someone who doesn't want to register as a sex offender, if they can get into, you know, short-term rentals and just move around. Right. That, I mean, I wouldn't imagine that they'd have to register if they were staying in a hotel. So, um, you know, I know there are rules, but those rules are rarely followed. I know um, about not being within so many feet of a playground or a school and things like that. But um, when I search the registry, that doesn't seem to be monitored. I live across the street from a playground. I live around the corner from a school, and those those rules don't tend to be monitored um, with the addresses that I'm seeing for. And that's the point I'm kind of making, because the reason they're supposed to register is so that people around them know Right. Whether this person is going to do it again or not, they did it before. They have to register. It's under the law. But if someone's coming into an Airbnb and they're a sex offender and you've got a playground across the street and you have no idea that your children might potentially be unsafe. Right. That's, um, that's a whole nother bag of worms. Um, right now we're battling with a lot of people who were released early from prison without solid plans for housing and employment or any type of um, system support. So um, where I am downtown, for instance, there are people who are sleeping outside in the park, sleeping at the Maggie Walker statue, um, walking around at all hours of um, the night. And it's, it presents a scary situation, not only for us um, who live in the neighborhood within homes, but we have homeless people who are a deep, rooted part of the community, people we know who we take care of in the community who are intimidated and sometimes victimized by folks who are coming in. So um, it's a lot of that going on. Um, several of the sex offenders that come up in my neighborhood don't have addresses. They have uh, a shelter address or other things like that, but there are no permanent shelters, they're transient, they're moving around. So it's really difficult to track. And when people are out in desperate situations, they tend to do more desperate things. And I understand, you mentioned the homeless people. I understand some of our parks are getting overrun with the tents. I have not seen tents. Um, I think at Forest Hill Park, there are a number okay, of them I, down there. I could be wrong, but I thought I heard that. I haven't seen the tents as of late. I know the, there are people who live and I go out with um, Blessing Warriors. There are people who live in tents, but they're typically not in public spaces um, that are easily seen. They'll be under a bridge or within um, a wooded area. Mm -hmm. um, but the, I would not be surprised if that is happening now. That's probably something we should look at deeper as we, yeah. maybe for our next podcast. Yeah. 
So we just uh, finished the 15th annual Fashion Week, Richmond Fashion Week. Recently, it's amazing. It's been 15 years. My partner, Jimmy Budd, who started it, I joined him in 2011, helping with the kind of on the back end. Uh, but it was really amazing. They had an incredible week. And I understand that your son came from Japan, was a panelist, and I didn't even know that. Yes, um, he came with a group um, to with called Girls for Change. I don't know if you got to meet any of the young I met some of them. I'm familiar with them as an organization. Yes. So they, Jimmy. they did a fashion show, and they got to meet individuals in the fashion industry a lot of the models from rva fashion week helped them out with their fashion show so it was a great event i got to see my son which is great because he's so far away and um, he doesn't get to travel very often so that's amazing he came all the way from japan yeah so for those who don't know the richmond fashion richmond fashion week is pretty incredible the final show was at the bond secures training center which is the old redskins training camp center um, at the, on the second floor. It was really, really neat. Um, very well attended, very well put together, produced. And the whole week, I understand all, everything that they did that entire week was great. So the next one will be in the fall. So that's something positive to look forward to that's going on in the city of Richmond. We do have incredible fashion designers, and there is a fashion underground community here that I don't think a lot of people appreciate. It's so incredible, and uh, I do think that it's it's always good to end on a positive note, uh, and having um, seen the conversation on the panel that took place in, in the fashion show at Thomas Jefferson, my alma mater, and my son graduated from Thomas Jefferson and is now a designer with um, he, he does collaborations with Supreme, so um, he's, he's inspiring young people, you know, back in his community, which I thought was a really um, great thing to see, and it was very heartwarming for me to, to watch him. I'd be curious to know what the fashion is like in Japan. I think it's, I think it's um, similar. It's, it's just... I don't even know how to describe um, what I see when I when he sends me things. It's just, I think that they uh, tend to go for simplicity, but but a lot of um, greatness and and detail. It looks more s simplistic than it actually is. It's well made, good quality stuff. And um, interesting. I learned about fabrics and um, Japanese denim and different things that he works with so things that he would never tell me and sit down and tell me so. well that's very cool and i think that's a wrap <laughs> yeah.